Our text today is from the Psalms, actually. This is a very long psalm, and so I cherry-picked some of my favorite verses to share with you today, because I'm the guest I can do that. Um, Mike has been going through Judges a morning this, this, uh, this week, off from that, and I hope to give you a brief meditation on Jesus' awesomeness today from the Psalms. So that's, that's the goal here. Jesus' awesomeness. As you find it in your Bible, on your bulletin, on your device, in front of you, wherever you find it, hear with me. Hear with me the word of our Lord. And it says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For you, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. Let's pray. Father, we need you to, to help us to focus, to, to, to hear clearly from you, to, to spend time dwelling upon this poetry where you, where you have a, a writer, Ezra, who, who, who set out to, to set up these straw men, these other so-called rivals to you, these so-called deities, and knock them down. Because you are the true and living God. And you're without comparison. Lord, convince us of this, that you are, as this writer says, awesome. Convince us of the import of that word and the meaning of it as we think about you. And how you relate to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, a study recently showed that the primary mo- emotion of the wealthy and privileged class of the United States is fill in the blank. What is the primary emotion of the wealthy and privileged class of the USA? Uh, I mean, I think we're all pretty much in that class. Uh, if we're in the USA, we're in the 90, top 99 percentile out there of wealth in the, in the world. And so, what would you say is the primary emotion that we all feel? Anybody got a guess? Close? Yeah, okay, we're getting there. Okay, we sort of, we sort of feel this um, disappointment. Disappointment is what the, what the study says. I'm sure there's a lot of studies that say things, but this one said disappointment. And I really, when I saw that, I really resonated with that. I don't like that. Uh, that I, 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 you know, I can t- load my kids up, my wife up in the minivan, drive to St. Louis, and experience the most awesome Lego Kids Fest of all time. And yet, eh, that was a great experience. But there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of disappointment that comes with things like that. If any of you have been to Disney World, you get that. You know, there's, there's, there's thing, we have these expectations of life. Things don't go as we always wish they would. 
You might get a speeding ticket on the way, or a toddler cries all the time. Things just don't happen like we think they should. And that's, a, that's, that's not okay. I'm not okay with that. I want to turn that around, not be as disappointed. How many of you have been disappointed with church? Yeah, we've all been disappointed with church. I want to turn that around today. I want, I want us to be honest today. How many of you have been on your smartphones in the last 35 minutes when I've called you to worship and you're doing more than just looking up the Scripture? You're looking at a game. Checking your brackets. It's a disappointment. Um, you're not just following along with the Bible. You have your mind somewhere else. You know, how many of you are right there? You're just not engaged. Um, unless your grandmother's in the ER, put your phone away. Turn the phone to airplane mode so you can't check stuff. If you're playing games during church, delete the games. Um, then re download them after church. Um, and so I want to turn it around that you're not as disappointed and bored here today, uh, if that's you. Not by shaming you. I mean, we could all look at each other and say, there's a point in which we're not all here today, present. But I want us to, to, to hear a compelling message from this text about the awesomeness of Jesus. That's the only way to turn it around. I want to talk about, just while we're, I mentioned Legos earlier, um, a song, it's a silly song, that I discovered watching a movie with my kids that speaks to this common disappointment with life and feel like nothing's really awesome. And, if, and the irony of the song is that the song's called Everything is Awesome, right? So some of the lyrics are, Stepped in mud, got new brown shoes. It's awesome to win, it's awesome to lose. No difference there. Blue skies, bouncy springs. We just named two awesome things. Skies? Awesome. Oklahoma skies especially. Springs? Yeah, awesome. A Nobel Prize, a piece of string. You know it's awesome? Everything. So, so Nobel Prize, string. I mean, string. Okay, so... These are two diametrically opposed glorious things. And, then, and so this song levels everything. It says, dogs with fleas, allergies, a book of Greek antiquities. Really? Fleas, dogs, Greek antiquities. Brand new pants, a very old vest, awesome items are the best. Trees, frogs, clogs, they're awesome. Rocks, clocks, and socks, they're awesome. Figs, jigs, and twigs, that's awesome. Everything you could think or say or do is awesome. And I want to submit to you, if everything is awesome, nothing's awesome. I tell, you, I tell people all the time, that was awesome. OU has an awesome campus. It's more awesomer than OSU or Texas. Everything is awesome captures the mundaneness with which we approach God. You know, if everything is awesome, nothing is awesome. Like I said, traffic is not awesome. Speeding tickets, not awesome. You can't level all things to awesome and not lose something. 
You can say Andy Griffith's show is awesome. Breaking Bad is awesome. Um, that's an awesome tie the pastor's wearing today. We have awesome, you have awesome kids. That was a really awesome meal I had last night. Mommy, he is such an awesome boyfriend. Uh, the cafeteria at OU is awesome. The football team is awesome sometimes. You know, the president has an awesome responsibility. These, some of these are accurate you know, about, hey, these are better than other things. Or bigger, larger. That brings me to the question of the day is, is Jesus awesome to you? Is he different than the other awesome things you know? If he's not, then there's no, 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 no surprise we're bored with him. Because we're bored with everything else. We're disappointed. Things don't live up to our expectations. Perhaps you're here today and you're begging for something transcendent. Something that breaks through. Something that truly is awesome. In a lot of ways, you're just, you, you want to be grasped by the awesomeness of Jesus. Maybe you've been grasped and internalized and realized the awesomeness of Jesus in the past, but moment by moment and day by day, you seem to lose it. And, I, and I'm going to tell you, if you've never read these verses which are in front of you, let me tell you that the verses before you, without equivocation, they express that the single entity, the creator of all, He only is awesome. Nothing else compares. Not an angel, not a rival to Him. There is no thing in creation that is awesome when looked at next to God. Nothing can be found that can approach His glory. Nothing competes. John Calvin said on this verse, he said, the world is not content with having just one God. It forges for itself a countless numbers of entities to worship. He said in another place that our hearts are like idol factories. If you look at the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve's problem was they looked at God and they, they looked for an alternative. Another word. A truer, truer love, a better love. I mean, God did give them all things except one tree. And they demanded that tree. And you and I demand something else. We look at God and we turn around and we go the other way. We look for something else. Well, today's sermon again is a brief meditation on the awesomeness of Jesus and a challenge to know and follow Him better. And so we're going to look at three points about His awesomeness. We could go on. This could be the longest sermon ever. I mean, honestly, we could go about every attribute of God. We're going to narrow in on three in the Bible. And first, so we're going to look particularly at the person of Jesus. Jesus is God, and we see His glory. First, in His pursuit. Secondly, in His passions. And third, in His plan. He's awesome. He's awesome in His pursuit. Well, what I mean by His pursuit? His pursuit of whom? What, the, what does that mean? Well, in First Mark 2.15, which we read earlier, it says that Jesus went to the tax collectors and sinners. He went to the most needy. He didn't just go to people who were doing fine. In fact, uh, it was the impression of those who were doing fine that Jesus was going to the worst. He said He was going to those who have need of a physician. Those are sick. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
That's why Jesus is awesome. He goes directly to the hardest case. He's like the Sherlock of saviors. He wants a challenge. He wants people like you and me. Sinners. Who's the worst sinner you know? Can you think of you have a you have an idea? <laughs> I love it. Jazz in the back saying myself. And that's exactly right. The answer is yourself. If you didn't answer yourself the question, you have no awareness of yourself. Uh, if you are saved by God's grace, you're one of the worst sinners. We're all tied for number one A, one B. We're all like we're number one, and so on. We're all the most desperate. Jesus goes to the most desperate, the most in need, the sick, the sinners. Jesus is called the friend of sinners. And if you've ever, if you've ever thought about that, what that means, he views you as a great needy, broken person who must be rescued. And I don't think that changes once we become converted, baptized, um, given new, becoming new creations. We're still in need of understanding exactly who Jesus is and who we are. No one of us is righteous. No one seeks God. But Jesus seeks us. He changes us. He, he restores us. He rescues us. So, so God's love is not this random shotgun approach in which He, he dies on a cross for whosoever will just accept Him. No, Jesus goes to a cross to save the worst sinners. He goes to the cross with your name in His mind. God has a reason for whom Jesus befriends. He wants the most needy. And He'll never, ever let you go. Okay? He'll never, ever do that. Um, imagine if you're walking down the beach and there were four children drowning. Four children drowning. That is a tough situation, isn't it? You know, beach is awesome, but four children drowning, not awesome. Right? See how I did that? Awesome, not awesome? Okay. Um, wouldn't you die? Okay, who do you choose to save? Who do you go after first? You've got to make a decision. I think we'd all probably go, over the, go after the kid who needs the most help. The one who's closest to dying. The one who's closest to drowning. Whose situation is the worst. It just makes sense. And that's exactly who Jesus goes after. If you're a believer, it means you're the most drowning. You're the most awesome drowner. You're the worst. That's how awesome He is. He goes to the sinners closest to death, the most messed up and broken. First, He got crucified for His love for sinners because the church leaders could not tolerate what He said about them. And what He said is that I have to go to Jerusalem, die, and be resurrected on the third day. I have to spill my life out upon a cross and my blood to save you. And they could not tolerate that message. Can you tolerate it? Is that your story? That I'm that bad that Jesus, the Son of God, had to die for me. 
If, is, if so, He is your friend. He has pursued you to the uttermost. Pursuing you as a friend. Now think about like middle school for a second. When, when you're in middle school, or elementary, high school, college, uh, working in a job, you can you expand in retirement home. Okay, like your whole life, our tendency is to go after friends who help us, who make us look good, who serve us in some way. We don't really like to die and enter into relationships. I mean, by die, I mean like enter into hard relationships with people that are not easy to be friends with. And we're a lot of those people. You know, we're, we're the people who are not easy to love. If you really think about it, if you're married, you know that. You're not easy to love. And your spouse isn't easy to love. We're not easy to love. You know, Jesus befriends the hard cases. Me. Him. Her. He, he is a faithful friend to the needy. That's why He's awesome. He befriends people, but not in the way we do. We go after the low-hanging fruit. The easy people to love. The people that are like us. But He goes after the people who are most unlike Him. Who are the hardest people to love. Who are the worst sinners. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteous of God. He knew no sin. But He went after the people who really knew sin. That's how awesome He is. He's a faithful friend who will not leave the needy, can't get it together, broken, hard cases who struggle their whole lives with sins that they can't, just can't kill. kill. They cannot do it. And those are the kind of people Jesus goes after. He loves them. He's never going to leave them because you know what? Their status is not dependent upon their progress. It's dependent upon His love for them, His pursuit of them. He went to the cross for them. He's not going to leave them and abandon them. He will always go and get the prisoner of the war and bring them home. Because we are in war, Christians. We are in war. And the devil has a lot of schemes that gets us captive with a lot of sin. And we all know it. If you were to, if you were to take just our last week of thoughts and actions and words and display them, on a, on a board in front of us and, or make a DVD about that and show it, it'd be ugly. But God is not going to leave us in that. He goes after us. Um, let me remind you of a story you might have heard. Hans Christian Andersen tells a tale called The Emperor's New Clothes. Has anyone ever heard this one? Okay, Several of you have. Some, many, many of you haven't. So let me just recount it for you. Well, there was a, once an emperor who loved wearing the best clothes. And he spent all of his people's money on those clothes. He had a different set for each hour. Can you imagine it? I don't like changing my clothes. You know, he he ch- changes them every hour. Okay, he's the finest dressed man in the world. One day, two crooks kind of came and claimed to be weavers. And they entered into the emperor's city and they proclaimed that they were capable of making the finest, the lightest, and the most magnificent clothing that's ever seen, been seen. So extraordinary was it, it was like any other. It was invisible to anyone 
who was incompetent or stupid. See, they trick him. So hearing of the, the weaver's talent, so to speak, the emperor thought he could, could take that cloth to weed out the undesirables in the city. Anyone who doesn't see it will be weeded out. And so he paid them an enormous sum, all of his money, to create the clothes. And the emperor sent out advisors to gauge their progress. And all their advisors, pandering to him, said, Oh, it's magnificent. They didn't want to appear unworthy, saying, Oh, the clothing doesn't exist, really. So finally, when they're finished, the, the two crooks take all of the emperor's money and jewels that they'd received, and then, and then the big day comes as the emperor's going to show off his clothing. Okay? So he walks out in front of everybody, buck naked. Okay? Buck naked. And everyone claps. Well done, emperor. That's the best clothing I've ever seen. Isn't it the most bizarre story you've ever heard? You know? So the entire city is in front of him, and he is naked. He's been, he's been milked of all his money and his resources for nothing. He is a fool. And everyone is delighting in his, is enabling his foolishness. The people have heard of what's going on here, and no one's willing to admit that they are seeing a naked man in front of them. They're like, oh yes, great clothing. Now, only a small child who's unaware of the story, cries out, but the emperor has no clothes on. Only a small little child is able to say it. And so I want to ask you, in that story, who are you? We all want to be the boy. But I think we're either one of the, we're either the emperor, unwilling to admit, or unwilling to see, and un- unaware of our foolishness and our rebellion and our sin, or the people who are too afraid to do it, too afraid to call them out and, and admit where we are. And so God, God wants to show you that wherever you are, that's you. He's befriended you. He's not afraid to come to you and say, you're lost. See, the boy in that story is actually Jesus. None of us have the ability or the guts to step into that situation and reverse it. But Jesus does. He's befriended lost people. Foolish people. Needy people who are frankly an embarrassment to the city, to each other. It's awful. It's shameworthy, that story. Silly. And so the answer here is to embrace that good news that Jesus comes to you and repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, and you shall be saved. That's the first point, is that God pursues the worst sinners. Second point, why is God awesome? Why is Jesus awesome? Because why is He better than all other things and other gods or other things we could worship in this creation? Well, because He does all this because of His passions. He's full of merciful passions meaning He's profoundly affected by you in the same, sort of same way, in an anal- analogous way. About we're all affected by the big game. When Arkansas lost last night, I had him going to the final two. That hurt a little bit. I'm a fool for Arkansas. 
They, they bring my hopes up and they dash them every time. Hurts. Broken relationships. Can you ever remember the first time you had your heart broken? Affects us. We've lost power. Some of us have lost jobs. Hurts. You can't eat. You want to sing the blues. We've all been wrecked by something. Rejection. Heartache. And note this, that your affliction afflicts Jesus. God is personal, and that is His awesomeness. There's no other deity like that who is affected by your hurt in the way we suffer because of our own sin. And that's awesome. God cares. Listen to this. In Isaiah 63, 9, listen to what it says. In all their affliction, God was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity, He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. If you're a note-taking person, write down Isaiah 63.9 and go home and read that and apply that to in all of Justin's affliction. Put your name in there. God was afflicted. He had pity on Justin. In his love and his pity, he redeemed Justin. He lifted Justin up, carried him all the days. That's it. First, here we see that Jesus is awesome because he befriends the worst sinners. But why is he doing it? It's because he's full of passion for you. Mercy, pity, love. He's a soft spot for those who need mercy the most. It's awesome. Hosea 11.8 says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? How can he? He can't. His heart recoils within him. His compassion grows warm and tender. Our God has a heart. A heart much greater than ours. He's awesome. He has an awesome heart for sinners. That's why He goes to sinners. They, both of the first two points connect together. You can't have the first one without the second one. It makes no sense. He has a heart for you. He can't quit sinners He chooses love. His heart recoils within Him at your loss. He wants you to get well. He has great internal conflict in His soul, so to speak. Your sin, which threatens your forever relationship with God, which He's established, sends shockwaves in Him. In the same way, when people sin against you or break your heart, it sends shockwaves through you in an analogous way. And so, you say, sin affects things. Yes, it does. You fail an exam because you're lazy and binged on Netflix. I've done it. There's consequences. I am who I am in part because people sinned against me greatly when I was very young. That might be your story. Or you're struggling mightily because someone sinned against you at your job or in your career. Someone passed you over or hurt you. You might think that I'm, you're single and it's not fair. Someone sinned against you. 
Maybe your son or your daughter is wayward. That's not fair. And I can't help but fear sort of that if that's you, then you might be thinking, well, I didn't do enough, I didn't do well enough as a father or mother. And you can just beat yourselves up and think about the sin. And the answer is yes, you didn't do enough. None of us have done enough. It's by grace that any of our children are, who they, who, are what they are. And God hurts over those things. He has a heart for you. He cares about your sorrows. They send shockwaves. They wreck Him. None of us have a problem with the assertion that our sin causes consequences and tremors that wreck creation. We stink of sin or this entitlement that we are to be the masters of our own dominion and we want to overturn God and that just messes everything up and we leave wreckage in our wake. And we know that. Some of us have been around the church long enough. We know that we have these patterns in our lives. And we know that we mess up, but we keep finding ourselves in the same places. And God, who is infinite and eternal, in Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 63, 9 says that Jesus, in His divine nature, outside of time and space, is wrecked in His heart about our affliction and our keep continual turning away so much that He would take on flesh and experience decreation, death on a cross, and the eternal wrath of His Father. For you. For the joy He has in destroying your guilt, the penalty and the power that sin has over you to free us for the verse we read in Revelation where He will dwell with us forevermore and He will be our light. Why? Because He feels that extreme passion for you. And that's awesome. His heart is wrecked upon a Roman cross his heart is broken for you because He loves you. This love is for the very people who hated Him and rejected Him. He tells His disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to descend and preach in Jerusalem first and then on to the world. He's going to the very people who killed Him. He loves the people who killed Him. We all killed Him. He has passion for the people who killed Him. Passion. It wrecks him. It's not the way it's supposed to be. He's going to turn it around. He's going to make the people who killed him faithful followers. He's going, to, he's going to take them out of slavery to sin and set them free and make them his own bride. That's what he does. That's the church. The church is called the bride in the Bible. So he has this purpose for us, this passion. Second point. Third point is the plan. Final point, the plan. Jesus chose the foolish things, things that aren't, to shame the wise. He chose people like Zacchaeus, a short, greedy man. Talking about one of our biggest sins is greed. Zacchaeus is a picture of all of us. It's our emotion. We want more. We want, to, we want more power. We want more money. And this is the person that Jesus wants to have dinner with. Why? Well, we already talked about he has passion. His sort of uh, pursuit. He wants to go to the worst. Zacchaeus is one of the worst. But for what end? He wants you to be so shocked and so surprised and so enamored that Zacchaeus 
and you are linking arms side by side, that this is something that you've got to proclaim to the edges of the earth. That's the plan. The last thing Jesus said to His disciples before He ascended was, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. He wants the whole world to know about this. And so some of the craziest stories are in the Gospels recorded for us because that's awesome. They're awesome stories of people like Zacchaeus who promotes himself, who betrays his own people. He's the biggest sinner that everyone knows. No one wants to have anything to do with him. And Jesus walks right up to him and says, I'm going to eat with you today. And he forgives him. And he changes his life. And Zacchaeus goes and pays everybody back. The wee little man Zacchaeus. Jesus walked the earth and loved sinners well. And those things are written down in the pages of our Bible even now so we can see how awesome He is. He didn't just do these things just to do them. They need to be seen by everyone. Every eye needs to behold the Lamb of God. And they'll either do so in judgment or in glorious salvation. And we're a part of the plan to bring people to their knees to love Jesus by making disciples. His love and mercy, mercy is unmatched. And He advertised it. He made a spectacle of it. He went to the worst so that He could not be ignored. We open the Bible, we cannot ignore it. How many stories of us are proof that God simply cannot be ignored. We are sinners saved by grace. How many stories of rebellion and lostness and hopelessness could we tell today about our own lives that Jesus saved us from? How He changed your heart. How you used to despise Jesus in church. Raise your hand if you've said that. If you you thought church was so stupid and God was so stupid. I have... And now, this is my life. You love Him and His bride because of what He's done. And so you put that together, and you have been made a living sacrament. You have been made a living book to be read. You've been made a living trophy to be displayed. A living trophy. Not one in the case, but one who lives in community. Jesus said they'll know you They'll know me by the love you have for each other. You all have a precious life, a precious story to tell. He's pursuing you. Um, So, he has a pursuit, a passion, and a plan. That's what he has. That's why he's awesome. And we go limping back and forth to him because we don't see how awesome he is. We limp from him to false gods. We compare God on one hand to other things we like. They're awesome. And my prayer is that you and I will follow Jesus. That we won't go in the other direction. That we will have this sort of idea of we've got to rescue people. That's His plan. His plan is a plan of rescue. Let me just tell you a story real quick from 1878. At the mouth of the River uh, Thames near London, there's a dreadful accident. There's a a steamer, that's a ship, um, called the... um, Bywell Castle. And it collided with another boat called the Princess Alice at the mouth of the river. It was a foggy night 
and about 600 people drowned that night. There were, there were two ferrymen running ferries there, and they heard the collision and the cries. And the coroner interviewed those two guys, and they said, you know, one man said, I heard the cries, but I was tired that night, and I went home for my supper. That's awful. The other one said, I got on my little boat, and I rode to the middle of the river, and I saw all these bodies round about, and I was so frustrated, because all I had was this little boat. And I kept crying out, Oh God, for a bigger boat. Oh God, for a bigger boat. Look, how have, have we ever felt that? I just wish I had a bigger boat to bring in more people. They're drowning. Jesus is awesome. We don't need tactics. We need Jesus. We need to know Him. He will provide the boat. He is the boat. He is the way. He is it. And it starts with knowing His passion for sinners. One final story. Have you heard of Desiree Andrews? Desiree Andrews. She's a, she's a middle school student in Wisconsin. Hey, Wisconsin. All right. So, Jake's perked up. Okay, Wisconsin. Well, the, the story goes, she'd watch, she, she has Down syndrome, middle schooler, and she saw on a TV show there was a Down syndrome kid, kid with Down syndrome who had um, become a cheerleader at her middle school. And so she's like, well, I'm going to be a cheerleader. So she asks, can she be a cheerleader for the basketball team? And of course, the the coaches thought that would be a great idea. And so Desiree Andrews became sort of a a mascot for this high school, a beloved figure on the sidelines with all the cheerleaders doing her thing. And people with this disability are not typically great athletes. She was there in her uniform, working and being a supporter of the team, cheering them on every game. And the story goes that one day, a middle schooler uh, in the stands, as middle schoolers tend to be, was sort of mocking this girl, Desiree. And three of the players heard this. One of them named Miles said, called a, one of the players called a timeout. And he and two of his... Um, brothers on the team, go to the stands, walk up into the stands, and tell the, the middle schooler to shut his mouth. This is, not, this is not the way you treat somebody. And they stood up for Desiree. And, it, and so the story got told, the news got a hold of it, it's been on the Today Show, I believe, they've interviewed them, it's been on Fox News, CNN, all this stuff. They've, they've shown the story, and, and they've named the gym after her, Dee's house, they say she is one of a kind. She's their beloved friend. They've cared for her. And I want to ask you one more time, who are you in that story? Are you the players heroically on the field? No, on the court. Basketball. March Madness. No. You and I or the punky middle school kid. We're the worst. That's who we are. And Jesus takes us 
and we need judgment, we need to be told, shut your mouth. That's not how you treat somebody. And he takes that on a cross for us. And he brings us home, all the way home, until you can find yourself as the mocker, the middle school kid who needs God's grace. This isn't awesome. There's no awesome Savior without awesome sinners of whom we all are the foremost. Let's pray.